On this episode, the Kalahari, Legume, it's uh, Swedish, Hating Mountaineering, and FLO, or Flow. Welcome to the Almost There Adventure Podcast. hosts, Severia Tilden, Jeff Hester, and Jason Fitzpatrick. Welcome to the Almost There Adventure Podcast. On today's episode, we're talking with somebody that has a role that I had never actually heard of before. It's Moose Mutlow, and he is a family liaison officer, and... uh, that's a that's a really interesting role that's part of search and rescue apparently but we're going to learn a little bit more about what that's all about and kind of how he got into that and and how that all fits into the outdoor experience uh and i understand also moose has a book out about becoming a family liaison officer i think that's right right moose that is correct here it is right here when accidents happen yes so moose tell us a little bit about your background and who you are and what you do a little bit better than probably we could do for you so well thanks thanks for having me along for the ride this evening um uh i come from a long background of of uh outdoor experiences as a sort of adventurer uh amateur explorer and outdoor guide i've worked for guiding groups and for groups like Outward Bound uh, around the world. I spent time in the Kalahari teaching in the, in the desert. I got real lucky with running a beach concession in the Mediterranean at one point. Um, and then ended up in the States and spent a decade with, out, with different Outward Bound schools. And then I started working for Nature Bridge, which is the largest provider of environmental science education in the national park system. I went to the Olympic National Park and I transferred down to Yosemite and I've been in Yosemite for the best part of 20 years. Wow, that's very unlucky that you got, you got, you know, shipped to Yosemite. I mean, I- Oh, it's I, so I, tough. I don't it know how a, you bear it. Brutal. I don't know how you survive what, it. That's what a just, dive. Yeah. <laughs> it is, yeah, I mean, we had, we had this atmospheric river over the weekend and you just had this, we had three and a quarter inches of rain at the house. And I was up at 6,000 feet today out in the snow and trees are failing and there were bear tracks right in the parking lot. And, and then you got the falls cranking for the first time for a while. I mean, we lost water in May. So, yeah, I saw, I saw a couple of pictures today from like Yosemite falls, just going full blur. Yeah. I've been, I've been out on the river every week, just training in my boat and I, I, it's been running at less than 50 cubic feet per second. And yesterday, where I boated, normally it was at five thousand cubic feet per second. So it really, Ooh. it really rifled wow. up. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. I guess the, the the silver lining to having this drought is if that had happened in a wet year, you might actually have flooding. And some of those those floods in the valley have been pretty horrible. They had flooding in the in the foothills of running out. They've they've had flooding. But it's up here. We're so desperate for it, and you can five thousand cubic feet per second is nothing. Like the height of the '97 flood, it was twenty-eight thousand cubic feet per second. Wow! So that—that's when you really get a flusher going on. So obviously, rivers part of your background. So you were doing stuff as a kid. You were outdoors. You went search and rescue. So how did you transition into this family liaison, liaison officer? role and like and please tell us more about that but also like what kind of brought you to that and was it always search and rescue was your passion no search and rescue i kind of drifted into i i think everybody finds their their passion the thing they really enjoy i love being on the water i I love being on the water whether it's, it's sailing canoeing swimming anything to do with the river i i love being out there doing it so i came from a technical guide background, working in programs, doing multi-day trips in the wilderness, or doing uh, groups that had some level of personal development and processing and facilitation. So I came from facilitated experience background. And when I got into search and rescue, which is when I started working in around the national parks, 
I, I was definitely in there as a technician. So I, I help coordinate the Swiftwater team in Yosemite now, and they do all the training and assessment for that. But what became clear is there's this role called family liaison officer, which is the interface between the operation and the family. And it's, it's basically acts as a buffer, insul an insulator, so that when you're on a mission, the family is being listened to and is being worked with and being supported. It's a direct line of communication to the incident commander, and that's a managed conduit of information. And coming from a facilitation background, I had some of the skills that allowed me to, to actively listen and effectively communicate. And because I had a technical amount of degree of knowledge, that allowed me to actually be credible in talking to people in crisis. So when somebody says, hey, what's going to happen now with the helicopter? I have enough exposure to that, or I know the people to talk to, to facilitate that discussion and not just wing it. Uh, if we're doing a body recovery out the river, I can talk to a family about what happens when you're trying to pull a body out the river. Because to, to pull a body out, you have to have a little bit more force than it's under, which is an extraordinary amount of force. It's holding it in position. And it's a violent act. And families need to understand that's the reason they're not there witnessing it is because it's brutal to watch a body be extracted from a very technical pin position. So I, I think it's, it's years of working in compassion-based work that sets up for you to have a level of ob objective empathy, the ability to be real, to be a witness to this trauma, this crisis, and, and then to be able to effectively communicate exactly what's happening in a way that people can be in processing what their loss is. We're not grief counselors. We're, we're about compassionate communication. And that can I be. I love that compassion-based work. I love yeah. that. I love and that it can term. Be, it can be over. I've I've had assignments that that last an hour. Like somebody somebody just didn't wake up from a camping trip, and they're they're seemingly asleep in their sleeping bag, but they're dead. And working with the family about what we're going to do as far as jurisdictionally transferring the body to a different level of care and then helping them through that really confusing process all the way through to assignments that begin in June and end in the ice in December. It can be long and short. I've done, I think I've done eight assignments this year since April. Judging from your thick, I think it's an Alabama accent, Tennessee, Alabama, yes, right? It's yes, the, it's the how, extreme Eastern. How uh, did you, uh, um, how did you end up here? You know, obviously I'm guessing from the UK somewhere, you know, working at Olympic. Not just Olympic. somewhere. Yeah. I'm from Birmingham. I'm oh, a okay. very proud Brummie. <laughs> right in the middle of the country. People yeah. are very rude about my city and I'm very proud of my city. Great. Um, and Birmingham FC the, is it, is that am I saying that right? Is that the right you, team? What are you talking about? Aston Villa. Okay, it's Aston okay, Villa. I didn't know. Yeah, I, yeah, you know. Manchester's all the way north. Yeah. It's got to be like seventy miles north. Yeah, um, I, I've binged. Uh, I've binged two seasons of Ted Lasso, and now I think I'm an expert. That's so. great. All right, there's some really good stuff in there. <laughs> yeah. Um, I I grew up in Britain, and at eighteen, I just got really lucky and started traveling, and. I, I was the only kid in my school uh, not to actually get into college. Uh, <laughs> and, and so I had this year to go do something else and it turned out I could get into college. And I spent a year working and doing, I was a fishery officer, I was a bar manager and I ended up in Southern Africa and had this amazing experience and then came back and started doing my you know degree and just started traveling around that time and then in 88 i just kind of left and i went to australia and it's i came to the states actually because i was working for outward bound australia and they were very rude about every outward bound school in the world they were they had a slideshow of every outward bound school and they went through this list and they were terribly rude about all of them tell you how good Australia was. And the only one they were nice about was North Carolina because they said they have really good philosophical approach to Outward Bound. And so I, I got a job with Outward Bound in North Carolina. I was there for a decade. Oh, wow. And then I kind of got, again, lucky I, with Nature Bridge. I 
was looking for a job, I was either going to go to the Arctic or and guide and then work down in Baja as a sailing instructor. And then I got an offer to be education director at the Olympic Park Institute up in the Olympic National Park. And I, and I went up there. I, I know a few people in, in Nature Bridge just I've encountered over oh. the years. You want to talk a little bit about, about the organization and its educational purposes and how they get kids outdoors and all that? That'd be great. Nature Bridge is, as I said, the largest provider of environmental science education in the national park system. There's about 20 institutes that aren't necessarily affiliated, that all do the same amount of work. It's equally as valuable in the 426 park units around the country. And we run three to five day immersive experiences that have an environmental science, science component, and then have an emotional social learning component. And we actually, it was our birthday this week. We were 50 years old this week. Uh, hey, congratulations. And we've, served, we've served over a million students in that 50 years. Wow, that's incredible. That's and we're emerging yeah. from that sort of COVID hangover and yeah. scaling back up as schools figure out how to get their kids back out there we'll, we'll start pulling up our numbers and we're just scaling right now to get back to our we original numbers we run about thirty-five thousand students a year through the program and my main job with with <coughs> nature bridge now is to build a 55 million dollar environmental science center the national environmental science center in yosemite national park lead platinum net zero energy 228 beds and i've been working that project for 15 years uh, yeah, no comment on the MPS in there. You know, I didn't hear you say anything about uh, <laughs> well, dealing with the National Park Service. Yeah, but the thing about it is the Park Service has this unenviable task of guarding the nation's sort of treasure. So any decision is going to take time because you want to make sure it's done right. No, absolutely. So there's this bureaucracy that guards the birthright of this country. It's like it's the national parks are the most extraordinary thing and i i'm really excited for the second century of national parks because we're revisiting what the true story of the parks are and we're, we're, we're at a point where we're staying, starting to understand the displacement of people who'd lived there for thousands of years we're understanding the impact of wildlife corridors we're re we're looking at fire regime in the light of climate change and it's an exciting time to be looking at particularly the U.S. national parks, because this national park system has such a massive global influence. And the reason I've stayed in Yosemite is if something resonates in Yosemite, if you're able to work through all of the challenges of Yosemite, there is a stage to actually involve people in a conversation about how do we transfer, transfer this into other places? How do we talk to there's a there's a park a brand new national park system in Mongolia and we we've sent instructors out to Mongolia to talk about environmental education we've sent people to Nepal we've it, it's in China it's like it's a it's a fascinating time to be in and around national parks do you ever just go you know, drive out of the park and you're driving through Mariposa and go you know Mariposa is not that bad well, I, I mean, live in Mariposa. Oh, you do? So okay, it's like, yeah. <laughs> it's, I actually quite like Mariposa. I moved no, out of the park a couple of years ago. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and the foothills is the most amazing thing. Everybody drives by them, and we have a ranch out in the foothills. It's the most beautiful place in the world. It's, like, got everything. and it's. But that's why everybody needs to understand is that national parks don't – they stand iconically on their own, but actually we have this sort of park-like quality around so many cities and places in the United States and the world that we just take for granted. And part of our program is to tell is to show students how to value the environment and then take it home and transfer that to a point where it it means something in their home community. There's so many wonderful places that I've been where I thought, you know, if this was somewhere else, it would be a national park. I mean, it's that quality of an experience and a, of a a wilderness or the beauty or the uniqueness of it and. Uh, you know, some places have sort of a, an embarrassment of riches of those kind of places in there, you know, like some states, for example, in the U.S. <laughs> and uh, and others just seem to be um, not so much. And so I but but I love the idea that you're able to educate kids and and kind of 
have them bring it back so that they can look at whether it even just be a park in their neighborhood or some, you know, hills nearby or a river that they that they like to explore and have an appreciation for what it takes to care for that and and hopefully internalize that themselves. And and the key part in all of it is you have you have a a, a world an informational world that is on the one hand totally fake on that on the sort of idea of personal image and the way in which people curate these images of themselves to show oh look how great I am look what I'm doing and actually inside they're incredibly unhappy you look at teenagers on social media and it's not a healthy thing and we can give them real experiences to take photographs and go look at this amazing thing and suddenly they aren't at the front of the photograph they're taking a picture of a thing to talk to somebody else about it's the most amazing thing is that a big part of your struggle now though like kind of getting kids away from the phones getting no, kids away from the fake experience or is it well, is it so that was the point i was trying to make is that if you give them genuine experiences and then they they sort of latch onto that and they get to share that <clears throat> we still haven't cracked how you use technology but but just being a luddite and saying you can't use it is missing an opportunity i mean the limiting factor on social media and like phones and technology is power if a kid doesn't have anywhere to power their phone, you've got a problem. So in our dormitories, we have limited number of charging outlets, so they have to negotiate with each other on how to charge up their phones. So that creates community communication. And the occasional knife fight, or no? no. Right. But the, other <laughs> part of, but, yeah, right. but the other part of it is to say, how do I use this thing to do sampling? How do I do it for GIS? How do I teach them to use this handheld as a tool rather than a distraction? And it, I like the idea of, I like the idea of having hope because they think it, it, as it, the, the, the train of thought I was trying to talk about is they they have this sort of world that they create that kind of is this thing that they've carefully curated and it isn't real. Mm. And then they have real, real world problems and they hear adults being like, oh, you're so, you're in so much trouble, like climate change, 2.3 degree. 2.3, it's going to be a go to hell, all this extinction. It's just negative, negative, and it's real. But as an educator, we have to be optimistic and we have to give them hope. And so we want to create the space where we say, tell me what you think, and we listen to them. Because if, it's going to, if we're going to get ourselves out of this mess, it's not going to be me. It's, it's going to be a young person who comes up with some way for carbon sequestration. It's going to be a young person who comes up with plastics in the ocean. It's going to be them that answer the challenge of today that we've created. And so I have to own that and I have to be optimistic, not, not delusional, but I have to have some level of hope. Otherwise, their spirits are crushed. And you know what happens with young people when their spirit gets crushed. They make bad decisions about the things they use. You see rising rates of suicide. All of this nightmare in society, like hope, it's a really powerful thing. I mean, that's what gets me excited is to be optimistic. And that's the thing I, I think with social media is that they are influencers in their own network within among their friends and, and the other people that they connect with. And if you can give them messages that are positive, or, you know, if they're sharing experiences that they have in wilderness that are genuine and um, that they're excited about, that's something that's going to carry over into other people as well. So it, hopefully that, that can spread some of that hope. Yeah, and who knows what it'll be in 10 years' time. Like, it's like, if you completely reject this thing, then you have no way of controlling it later on, of like shaping it, for a better word, and directing it in a constructive way. And children... Mm -hmm. <laughs> children are conditioned to when you say no to keep doing it i was i was an adolescent i'm sure you lot were as well like oh don't do that and what did you go and do exactly the thing you were told not to do and i i think the success for young people is to have voices that are listened to hmm. they're they're in a world that they're pushed to one side players become illegal in cities we now have designers whose sole job is to make sure that somebody can't skateboard an edge. They can't grind an edge, so they put a little piece of metal on. We have designers whose sole job is to make sure people can't sleep on benches. That's an industry. Imagine if we actually had people whose job was to make landscape embracing a play and multi-age and multi-ability. 
and we paid for it. And that landscape is what many young people inhabit, the landscape of no. And parks give the opportunity for yes if parks adapt for the next century. Um, thoughts. Yeah. I guess going back in, in history, just I've, one thing that you, something I've always sort of been interested in that you mentioned is that you went to the, uh, the Kalahari. Um, that must have just been an amazing experience. How did that happen? What was that like? I mean, is that sort of where you first cut your teeth with uh, outdoors and, and, you know, search rescue and that kind of, you know, wilderness experience? No. Well, I mean, anytime you're in the, you're in the outdoor industry, you're in search and rescue. You just are, because you're the you're the you have some level of professional qualification, and disasters happen around you with other people all the time. So I'd worked sort of in and around mountain rescue in Lake District, and I up in I've done stuff down in the south of France in the Ardèche canoeing, and but it was always responding to accidents on the river in an unofficial manner, like somebody gets pinned and you have to get them out. And then I actually had finished with Outward Bound and after five years I wanted to do something differently and I got a British council job which recruits internationally for teachers and I went and taught in a small community junior secondary school in the southern part of the Kalahari. And uh, yeah, it's like you had the Land Rover and you're out in, out, <laughs> out in the desert and yeah, it's a, it was an amazing experience. I think any time there's a, a Western solution to another country's challenge, it, it's a little tough. Botswana is a little different because Botswana is a society based on pluralism. The founding father, Father Soretsi Karma, uh, is Botswana, and then his wife Ruth Karma was Anglo. And so the flag of Botswana is, is both black and white. And it represents this plural society. And that's one of the reasons I chose to go there. And it's right when the elections were happening in South Africa. It was this sort of profound experience because you kind of know, you recognize the limit of your capabilities. Do you mean the, the Mandela, the election when Mandela took power? Yeah, yes, so yeah, I, yeah. when I was 19, I ended up working for the defense, one of the defense lawyers. During the show trials in the 50s, Mandela had lawyers and one of the lawyers uh, families I worked for in South Africa when I was 19 and I had this profound exposure to the horror of apartheid and it was it, they did they they did an amazing gift because they gave me this this opportunity to look at the horror of what people can do to each other and they 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 didn't pull any punches and it's I think about it every day because it's that injustice, that profound injustice, uh, we all have a responsibility to, to fight against it. And you, you all find the place. We don't, we don't all, we can't all be at the sort of very, the very point of it, but we all have a responsibility. And so anybody who's fighting for equality or acceptance, not, true acceptance not tolerance that that is a worthy fight yeah absolutely that's sorry that's a tough one to follow up here <laughs> um, no, I love that. then i got really drunk like, and yeah, then i like, yeah, went crazy no, yeah no, that's amazing no that's it's so, that's amazing yeah <laughs> Moose, i love um sort of the emphasis on true acceptance versus tolerance yeah i mean it's they had the, yeah there was i mean this, it's like it's a beautiful yeah yeah it's the nuttiest thing to just tolerate something. It means, that means you never have to like sit there and really ask yourself a hard question. And it's, I mean, look at me, I'm like 56 years old. I'm an older white guy. I've had privilege my whole life. And we have a responsibility to listen and we have a responsibility to accept the way the world is, is, is will change. And it's always changed. It's always changing. And it, the idea that it isn't advantageous to have a more fair and equal society, that's nuts. That just makes sense. And the fact that everybody should feel safe, that kind of makes sense. Everybody have a right to the same level of education. That sounds like a good idea. It's, mm -hmm. yeah, it's more than, you don't, you accept. You accept change. Yeah. So, so working with kids, 
Um, you know, as a Gen Xer, we pretty much hate every other gener. I hate every other generation, not individually, but collectively, you know, the older generation screwed me. The younger generations are useless. Right. But obviously you're working with the very young generations. Do you do no, what I gives you everybody. cause for hope? Right. Or what gives yeah, you cause I, from hope with working all with all these people, like in the national parks and everything? I, I think every, every time you make a contact with somebody, you try to make the world a better place. It might be simplistic. And I am a deeply flawed human being. Like I get up and I'm like. I'm pretty angry some mornings and, oh my goodness, I can't believe I've got to go and do that. Mm, stomp, stomp, stomp. It isn't any one generation's, we're, we're all responsible for what happens next. And I love the fact my dad is 90 and um, he is this sort of, well, he's actually 91. And sorry, dad, I forgot that. Um, and last year he wrote a book, right, about his experiences growing up in an orphanage. And so he has this sort of, Okay, he's written a book at 91 years old, his first book. And he had this thing where he said, uh, we had this thing in Britain where we got out of the European Union. And he said, mm. nobody under the age of 60 should have been allowed to vote because it wasn't about their tomorrow. Which is like, I love that idea about their tomorrow. It's like, but actually it's all our tomorrow. And I... I think we have more in common than we choose to maybe recognize because recognizing we have things in common uh, allows us to be divisive. So the key is to uh, build those relationships and, and strengthen those relationships that cross age lines, you know, so we're not generational lines. So we're not, you know, pitting one generation against another, but we're working together. Yeah. I mean, and I think the, the parks in the next century have to be, be able to accommodate differences in the way that we view families now. And they have to accommodate different uses of trails. And they have to think about changes that are a little radical, but they aren't really that radical. I mean, what's more radical? Kicking people off their land and saying they can't come home or saying that you can have an electric bike on a bike path. You know, like parks were founded on radical action. It's uncomfortable, but it's the truth. No, well, and, and then like kind of leading into what you say about people have more in common than, than we think. I mean, it's funny when you look at where people poll as far as the issues, there's very little difference between left and right, at least here in the United States. Um, but, you know, the way media, the way, you know, social media, the way media media would have it be and the way the politicians seem to want to push it is that there's this vast canyon or chasm between us when in reality there isn't. It's just... There's power in the division, sadly. Right. And that's kind of what's happened with our age, you know, in this age. And it's, it's sad. Well, news, news happens on the extreme end. Yes. Because if it's in the middle, it isn't news. But actually, we're all fantastically ordinary. I celebrate being fantastically ordinary because my aspirations <laughs> are like kind of reasonable. And I'm not too disappointed if they don't happen. And when I look at someone extraordinary, I can be like, oh, Nelson Mandela, he's extraordinary. Because there was one Mandela. And it, I think we're not all extraordinary. I think we're actually, it, it's, it actually takes a lot of pressure off us when we're just ordinary and in the middle, because it's much easier to get on. Are you sure you're not Danish? I, I only ask that because they, they win the happiness index like almost every year, you know, when they poll the people and they're the happiest country. And they say the root of that is because they all have very like, you know, like, very low expectations in a way, you know, not like horrible expectations, but they just don't have these sort of grandiose expectations. So if they don't meet, you know, if they, as long as they meet these very basic things, they're pretty happy and content, you know, but that's Lagom. The yeah. idea Lagom is this is, I think it's Swedish and I may be mispronouncing it, but the Island idea that it's just enough. The idea that if we all take just enough, then it's better for everyone. And, and I love that idea. I think that that is, that that's the sort of tragedy of the commons is anybody everybody took whatever they could take and look what happened to it that's the thing that we're facing now is a lot of a few people have a lot and a lot of people don't have anything so so we a couple episodes back we we talked to um somebody who just authored a book about yosemite a guidebook for hiking but we one of the things we talked about was that tunnel view view you know like you come through the yeah. tunnel and you look at the valley all right I think that trend, that's an experience that transcends generations, race, political viewpoints. I think anybody can stand there and, and I don't think 
I don't know of a single person with a pulse that would look at that and go, yeah, that's kind of sucks. You know, they're, you're in awe. I mean, you just have to be. It's uh, human nature to look at that and go, wow, that's pretty, pretty remarkable. And I think that's, that speaks to the, the power of our natural places to, you know, kind of unite us. Well, I, I, that used to be my commute. I used to come into the valley from the south every day and go through the Wawona Tunnel. And you would come out and bang, the view was there. And probably 10 years ago, eight years ago, they started restoring the historic view shed. And they started cutting, they sort of identified a pier and said, all right, 1932, let's preserve that view. And they cut down a bunch of trees. And I didn't know they were doing it. So I came ripping through the tunnel. And there was a lot more sun than I was ready for at the end. And so I squinted and hit a patch of ice. And then as I sort of slid out of control on the road, I recognized that something was happening on the left and I got my car under control and pulled over and then went and saw that brand new, that new view from the tunnel view. And it is amazing. It's the most, it's a stunning thing. I do know one person who was unmoved by it, who was Norwegian and they were just like, hmm. We have a lot of. I've seen better. We have a lot of granite in Norway. (laughs) (laughs) I've seen better. Yeah, Lofoten is amazing, but it's not more amazing than Yosemite Valley. I've been to both. um, You know, but I will say it's kind of funny. There was a um, there's a great book called Cadillac Desert. I don't know. Right. Yeah. Have you read that? And they talk about Maholland. What he told, um, I forget who he told it to, but if you remember, he he told someone that was trying to preserve the park. That what he would or or some water official that what he would do is go and film it all, document it all really well, and then build a dam at it and turn it into a reservoir. So I think I like what you're saying, Jeff. But but don't be. There are those people, and if you ever hear like the history of the Grand Canyon, I mean there were like people that fought tooth and nail to keep it from becoming a national park so they could continue to capitalize on it. So you know, and it almost got flooded. I mean that was a huge battle that that the Sierra Club won in the '60s. That was like that close to flooding you know the grand canyon believe it or not so so it's you got to be a little careful you got to keep your eyes open and and, you know most people do but but you know never uh never uh underestimate and again hetch hetchy right there's hetch hetchy so but but we also have to remember on the whole idea of dams it's the largest dam removal project in the country was the elwa up in the olympic national park and it's the most amazing thing like it's it's staggering like the, the salmon, the, they said they thought the salmon, they were hoping the salmon would come back in 100 years, and they came back in like one, right? Like one oh yeah, or two the sal- years. The salmon were there pretty much immediately. The yeah. trout were moving upstream immediately. The sediment that sort of flowed out from Lake Mills went out and created all this new habitat out on the coast. I mean, it's the most, we have hope in this sort of landscape. It might be incremental, but it, like Barry is being re- redesignated as protected lands and the first really tribal national park to recognize tribal right. And there's some of that within the Alaskan Land Act as well. But I, again, the, those are stories that we need to tell people to have that optimism. Um, and I, I'm intrigued about, I always go back to that thing, what's the next hundred years for the national parks? That's, that's the, the, uh, the idea I think if you think about a national parks and you start saying, well, whose idea was it? And you hear the people who are involved and it's Roosevelt, Muir, and same names go on and on and on. But actually, it's, it's a lot of other people. It was the administrators. It was the first rangers. The first rangers in, Olymp- in uh, Yosemite National Park were Buffalo soldiers. Yeah. And they, they would patrol up and down in the valley and down to the big trees in Wawona. And th- so there is these amazing legacy stories that, that are being... They've been forgotten and rediscovered. And it's it's what that story is going to be in 100 years time. Will it show it? it we hope that it will show a, a, a more inclusive and uh, scientifically based understanding of the management of wildlands. And some 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 really good snack bars, you know, because well, you have to eat. Are, yeah. I agree completely with what you said. And I sorry, I don't mean to make light of it, but, you know, you know. You know, hiking makes you hangry, right? You got to, you know. <laughs> well, the place to go for hiking is Gates of the Arctic. There'll be like 42 yeah. visitors, and yeah. then you have to look at a polar bear. 
And that's a great way to get, to really get those snacks like cranked. I've been there, although there's not a single snack bar or road there, so it's a classic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did the no attack, so so yeah, I've done oh, the, the no attack. Oh, yeah, really? That's yeah. a, a classic. Oh, it's beautiful. It's gorgeous. But yeah, no snack bar. Yeah. Um, that I saw. I don't know. Maybe there was one. You know, yeah, and I just bring your it. own snacks. Yeah, yeah. Fly, you got to fly. Well, you got to fly in there, so you know you got to fly in your own snacks. Um, I think that I think this is an interesting point with the Arctic because our new campus. We're currently working with the University of California and uh, Ericsson at looking at trying to get high-speed internet onto the campus so we can have real-time conversations with distant communities. And the idea mm -hmm. of exporting education, but also having people come in and tell us what's happening. So in Nunavut, up in northern Canada, mm -hmm. is having people talk about what it means to have sea level rise or yep. to hear what people have faced on the northwest coast of Alaska or to have conversations with, with fire officials in Australia is technology can shrink the world and it and it can expand our, our global our, our constituent group and i think that's a really good example of where technology can add to an experience mm -hmm. now have you been to gates of the arctic have you i know you mentioned no, you I, almost got I, you got up I there have you been up there attack i've done yeah. the i've done the copper mm -hmm. uh from mccarthy down to cordova yeah and i've done the bonnet plume and i did oh. some other thing out of uh uh what's the one what's the town right next to denali um talkeetna i did a river mm -hmm. out of talkeetna yeah i had a very miserable two weeks on the uh talkeetna glaciers mm -hmm. uh the denali base camp as a search and rescue volunteer and i discovered i really hate mountaineering like with a deep what a coincidence and a jeff passion. and i discovered that a few months ago so oh, yeah. it's yeah. there's a book by leonor terry maybe called conquestadors of the useless <laughs> yes yeah. that is mountaineering <laughs> yeah yeah no absolutely yeah we we yeah. had that experience on mount rainier back yeah. in may yeah. uh we were we were part of a uh, a guided uh attempt on the to summit rainier early season oh and okay. uh got yeah yeah it was it was like the worst conditions possible it was like yeah. the the triple wind the snow. triple crown of yeah. bad conditions yeah heavy snow high winds and extremely cold temperatures so yeah uh we got close but not all the way yeah. and uh we're leaving it for we'll severia severia mount you can keep mountaineering and we'll keep yep. everything we'll do yeah. everything else severia's our <laughs> mountaineer yeah I'll take it. So, Moose, you mentioned a book. Oh, tell us a little bit more about your book that you just came out with. So, I, the COVID really slowed things down. I don't know whether you noticed that. There was a lot more time on our hands. And I ended up deciding I was going to write a book. <clears throat> and so I wrote, When Accidents Happen, uh, Managing Crisis Communication as a Family Liaison Officer from My Experiences. So it isn't like a adventure bedtime read. Uh, it's, it's actually a sort of how-to book when you're faced with a family that doesn't know the answer to something or somebody is missing. How do you manage them within the ICS, the Instant Command System? And it draws on a lot of experiences I've had, and it's meant to be a, a living guide so that somebody can grab it and go, I don't like the way he does this, but I'm going to take this. It's meant to be a way, not the way. And it was quite cathartic writing it, actually. Because I started replaying all a lot of the incidents I'd been on. I've been on dozens of fatalities in the park now. And it got me to replay the very first one all the way through to sort of the, the most ridiculous ones, mm. um, which actually have better outcomes. But uh, yeah, as a book, it was, it, was a, it's, it was a fun write, ultimately. So, so Moose, I, I got to ask. It's I'm I'm kind of getting the idea, and maybe I maybe it's incorrect that you're brought in when there's a fatality, or is it always a fatality, or you know, uh, is it not always a fatality? I should say. <laughs> so, so, so if you ha you could have a call that's like uh, we got a disappearance of a 35 year old male. They they're 24 hours late. We've got winter storms that have been reported in the area. That's quite often the time you call in a family liaison because it's, still, it's, it's going to be a protracted mission. Um, so I might come in and be on that for a few days until we resolve it. Or I can get a phone call like I have this year, which is we have a death and 
you get you get a breakdown of what's happened and then you start managing it pretty much from your car as you're driving to the incident are you so are you just yosemite does how far does your sort of how far does your work expand and um and also like how many of your position are there like is it common for search and rescue to have a family liaison officer is it only in like major national parks like yeah where does this position exist so I, I train in other national park units. So I'll go to other parks, Smoky Mountains, Tetons, Yellowstone, Southeast Park units, and, and I'll train their personnel in family liaison. And there's normally a handful of people around it, but it, it's, it has a high impact role. So you have a pretty high turnover on it. Um, the mental health aspect of it means that there are people who will literally be fine and done a dozen and then the 13th one they can't do them anymore and it i think in a lot of agencies as family liaisons set up as a position it isn't always filled because you don't have somebody qualified or think they're qualified and it's increasingly being used in search and rescue in the u.s as more resources become available for people to understand how to use it effectively because the most crushing thing for a family to do is to feel like they're not getting information. We've all seen people on the TV who says, I don't know what's happening. You know, that's often because there's an under-resourced family liaison or they haven't been put out there. Well, I know, I know one recent one, they, they just, I guess, saw those, that poor family that passed away. Um, I guess it wasn't in the park, right? They died of heat exhaustion? Um, yeah, so that, that was, was outside that the park, right. and, and the sheriff did an outstanding job of yeah. working with that family. And if you look at the family statement associated with that, they talk about the support they got out of Mariposa County Sheriff, Sheriff Breeze. And, and that's the mark of, I, I think it's easy, there's an easy cultural piece to just be down on law enforcement and peace officers. And at that, but they're just trying to do their job a lot of times, and there's definitely times it doesn't, they're not doing the right thing. But this case is a, is a really good example of where a family was supported throughout. And I wasn't involved in that, um, that case, but it really struck me reading about it. Um, that it was, I mean, it's the scale of that, the tragedy of that is, you're not the same after those ones. No. It changes you. So, so Moose, you said that uh, oftentimes you get started on the phone while you're in the car on the way to a scene or to sim where are you headed? Are you headed to the, to meet with the family to go to? Yeah, so sometimes yeah. you meet in the family and you're going to intercept them and guide them in to a location. Mm. <clears throat> sometimes you're heading to the IC, the, in the incident command, or you might be going to a midpoint. You might be going to the heli base to figure out what's going on there. And you're just trying to figure out the way to interface into the communication system. And actually, during COVID, I did a few that I was I was just online. I was just remote, and you're you're doing virtual contact with the command staff, so you know what's going on. And families had more access to things like Zoom to easily have some level of conversation. And then, depending on the nature of it, if you if you if you have a fatality transport out of your jurisdiction, then essentially you're when your custody ends, I, I don't have a role anymore except for Freedom of Information Act uh, from a family requesting information and a chaperone that through the request process. When we have a line of duty death or we have an employee death, that's a bit different. And, and, you, get, and you get assigned to that for a very long period of time. Yeah. Oh, wow. Jeez. <laughs> In the interest of preventing some of these, I, two kind of, I saw two kind of things cross my radar this week. Uh, two stories. One was one that was passing around, and Jeff actually posted it on uh, SoCal Hikers, which is wh whether or not to change your voicemail message. Oh. So there was a huge internet debate on that. <laughs> you know, passionate people threatening death to the people that disagree to them over that one. And then another one, Tell which us, I forwarded. Moose, what is your yeah. opinion? And then another kind of <laughs> thankfully funny because it had a good ending one where a guy was missing and people kept calling him and he wouldn't answer the phone. Because the, it was an search and rescue, yeah, search and rescue kept calling, was calling him, and it, him. He didn't recognize the phone number, so he wanted to answer it. Uh, thankfully, he came out okay, so we can maybe laugh a little bit about it. But, um, but, but <laughs> the, the story in that one is he self-rescued. Yes. And 
And I, and I think that the, that sometimes I think we have a responsibility to point out where the lesson actually is. That guy self-rescued. Like he didn't, he didn't even know people were looking for him and he got himself out of that problem. That's the story. And it is funny. Like he was like, I'm going to save my battery. I'm not, who is that? Is it a spam call? You know, they, imagine him hitting spam over and over again. They really want to talk to me. Um, but he didn't even know. No, I don't need to. I, yeah. My car warranty my car is warranty fine. Is don't worry just about fine. it. Yeah. Like, yeah, my, I haven't got a college own. I yeah. didn't go to college in this country. Yeah. Um, so, and that, that, the technology piece is maybe with sort of spot devices and what have you, more people are getting out on the trail and they might be getting into a little bit more trouble. But it is what, I mean, like, you can't have both things. You can't have more people advocating for the outdoors and less people using it. And it's kind of like shoddy in truth because we've all had epics. We've all had terrible judgment. <laughs> and as Paul Petzold said, bad experience leads to good judgment. And so while the epic and sort of maybe now thrown out in the sort of court of public opinion, that's where you make the best learning. And most people that I deal with uh, in fatalities have in a moment failed to understand the scale of what they were they were playing near or with they've, they've got too close to the water they they maybe had a drink on the edge of the cliff they they did something in the cascade effect where it was a series of very small steps that led to their demise there are a million other people who did nine out of those ten steps and it, they didn't fail they didn't have this tragedy and so I think we have to be kinder about accidents and less judgmental, learn the lesson. But uh, we, we don't know what happened up until that moment. It's very rare that I've seen something where I go, that's somebody just being a fool because every single teenage boy is a fool. <laughs> Most middle-aged ones too, honestly. I mean, yeah, you know. So, well, I, I, I think I, I've read somewhere a statistic. I, I can't quote this, but... Um, that a large percentage of the fatalities that occur in Yosemite are male under the age of 25. Can you confirm or deny that? Or have you heard anything to that effect? That wouldn't be the statistic I would talk about this year. Um, I, there is a significant proportion around water. There's a lot of younger people who get in trouble around water. And there is something about jumping on a rock when you're surrounded by a class, you know, you're in the middle of a class five rapid and you decide to jump one more rock. Um, but it's like, it's a smorgasbord. I mean, it's two or three of the most recent disappearances in and around national parks have been older males. They're, they're, they're sort of 50 plus. And there, as soon as you start trying to find a pattern, you, you find the pattern Somebody you want to find. It. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that that's the other part about COVID is you've got all these people who are, who've been cooped up for a year and a half and they're getting out and it's everybody. It's, 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 it's not just one. It's, 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 it's the whole gamut. I think it's funny. Cause I think it was certainly the three of us and you as well, from what I can tell are have kind of dedicated ourselves to trying to inspire people to be outdoors. I think none of us just expected that it would be so many at once, you know, <laughs> like kind of testing the limits of what, what you hope for, you know, it's like, Oh, we want everyone outside, but you know, maybe not, you know, so many people at once and maybe, you know, people maybe doing a little more homework on what not to do. Like, maybe trash and things like that you know so. yeah i mean it's and land i mean to me i'm like everybody who's gone outside this year should be a constituent for public lands right let's hope and more money yeah, and like let's hope yeah like figure out how the great american outdoor act is actually going to have better bathrooms and trash pickups yeah. or like let's figure out innovative ways to deal with human waste so like uh on um denali they have this great little mountain poop system where you poop in a bag and they, they, you bag it out and a ranger invented it. And that's what they're now using to get, you know, creatively get human waste off the mountain. One of the jobs I had at Denali when I was on the glacier was looking for a giant frozen poopsicle, which was the long drop toilets. They drop magnets in them 
and then they traced those magnets as they went down the glacier to see how long it took a giant 40-foot poopsicle to come out into the water. And when I say I was part of that science thing, I want to be really clear. Queen Latrine, who was in charge of the study, right, Katie, um, she was in charge of it. I was actually allowed to be part of their expedition because I was heavy. They said, you can be an anchor. And so we went out at midnight <laughs> and I just was an anchor while the two of them um, like dropped into uh, the sort of crevasses to check with their giant electric magnetron um, for this giant poopsicle that was never, ever found, as it turned out. Mm. Um, but it lost got to it. be part oh. of a really fun piece of science. One day it's just going to appear and it's going to blow people's minds, you know. Well, I mean, it's not going to be that long. I mean, you're seeing glaciers now in Europe revealing this sort of long history of, of, of the last century mountaineering accidents and finding, all, you know, umpteen thousand years old bodies of hunter-gatherers and... Skis. Yeah. I just saw, like, watched a video last week with uh, in Norway, I believe, they found... Uh, well, they had found what they thought was the first ski like a couple of years ago. And then I think the second one they found like a week, couple of weeks ago and they're, you know, unearthed it. And it's like a couple, like a thousand year old ski here. More than like that. Like, yeah. 3000. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. What, what, what brand were they? Yeah. Yeah. Right. They were Fisher. <laughs> Fisher. Have you ever yeah. seen the Warner Herzog movie, movie, the happiest people? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The bit where he makes the skis. Yeah. Yeah. And he says, why would I want to have a metal binding? Why would I want that? Yeah. Yeah. And I, that idea of, of having that skill yeah. and that attention to detail to be able to be self-sufficient, I mean, that's what we all, we shouldn't all be making these amazing skis maybe, but I want to make sure that when people go in the outdoors that there isn't snobbery to say you can't come back because it's been exclusive to people on a, on a cultural level, on a societal level socioeconomically for too long and we have to we this is we this is a big tent we need to pull more people into it absolutely moose let's go back to something you mentioned earlier one of your past careers working on a beachside concession in the mediterranean <laughs> And so why are you still there? Yeah. Yeah, you're oh. a young man working at a beachside concession on the Mediterranean. Did you ever dream that you would end up where you are today? Oh, no. And, gets... and what did you dream at the time? <laughs> well, th that job in itself deserves a little bit more of a sort of framing in that I was well, running a water it. sports concession on the Mediterranean, sailing, kayaking, uh, snorkeling. And uh, I ran it on a camp that was definitely pretty boozy and we had this kids camp and then we had this adult camp and the adult camp did lip-synced uh like broadway musicals as entertainment and the staff had to be in it so the windsurfing instructor was in jesus uh, uh what was it technical uh, dream coat joseph in his technical we had to give up the windsurfing instructor to be joseph and they were going to do barnum which is, and I can juggle and I can unicycle. And one of the reasons I left the job was I like, I can't lipstick Barnum. I can't do it. But anyway, <laughs> I was working on this thing, but the camp was next to the largest naturist nudist resort in Europe at Cap Dag. And it's an entire city of naked people. And I am such a prude. I'm English, you know, we're born with clothes on. And if you went onto this area of the beach, you had to be naked. And our dive site was on the other side of the resort. And I would wade like a mile through the surf so I didn't have to take my shorts off. And I'd arrive at the diving site, I'd be exhausted. And I would just hope it would cloud up because if it clouded up, the police didn't tell you to put your pants on. And so I'd sort of recover after my nap and then have to wade back through. And the only time I ever cashed my checkout at the, at the resort was on rainy days. Because then you were allowed to wear pants. <laughs> I hope you don't you don't that. ask me to cut this out after. The only time we talked about naked no, people on awesome. beaches in Europe, this is the only thing I've actually cut out of any of these episodes to this point. No, I won't no. say who. I won't this say who or I why. Think this can make it in. Yeah, yeah. I'm hoping this, this makes it in yeah, though because I think, I think this is going to be better. Better, and I won't have to cut. So, I hope I don't have to cut it. But the thing you know. is, you never ever say. You just don't ever say no to anything. Like if it sounds like a good idea. It's either going to be a great story 
you're either going to learn from it or it's going to be an opportunity. And so I've, I've kind of always try to say yes to stuff that's on a job level. So I, I moved fiberglass swimming pools in Northern Australia at one point fleetingly. And then I picked fruit in Europe and in Australia. And I was a fishery officer, a bar manager. I worked in residential social work, which was just profoundly forming of, of, of trying to be a good person and to be, to be accepting, um, and be accepted at the same time as well. It's, you, you always go out and do the, you always do nutty jobs. The other day I got a job, a friend of mine was like, Hey, we're redoing the traffic in Yosemite Valley. Do you want to come up and put out, do traffic control with the sign? Yeah. And, and put out bollards. I'm like, yeah, I'll come and do that. It'd be amazing. And halfway <laughs> through it, these guys come up to me and go, Hey, we dropped our phones in the river. Do you know anybody who can help us? And I'm, I'm swift water rescue guy. And I got my stuff in the car and I asked the person on traffic control, can I leave? And they said, yes. And so I left and I went to help these guys who'd lost their phone and I'm chatting to them. And it turns out they knew the lineup of my favorite soccer team from like 1983. Unbelievable. Like, so I'm going to find their phones and I'm trying to be really casual about it and putting my wetsuit on and I pull my wetsuit on. It's a long john and I strap it up on one side and sort of chatting to them about what we're going to do diving to look for it. And when I go to pull the other side, the long john up, the Velcro fails and the other side explodes off. And I do this two or three times before I realize I have put on quite a bit of weight over the COVID disruption <laughs> and my wetsuit no longer fits me. So now I'm just wearing a pair of neoprene long johns with these sort of flappy bits on and I wade out in the water. It's snow melt. It's pretty cold. And I've got my sort of mask on and I dive and I find both their phones and Stop. people just erupt on the bridge. They're so excited that I found these people's phones. And then I go back draft and I go back to like, doing stop traffic like stuff that is why you always say yes to stuff because you end up on oh that pathway I, I have to I ask it. it's a very cliche question that i'm you must be tired of but is moose your given born name did your parents no. name you moose or is it like morris and you just like moose better <laughs> no I, my name's jonathan so my mom calls me jonathan okay um, okay <laughs> and, well that makes sense yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. and and um <laughs> And I became Moose like one summer and it just kind of stuck. And it, the, when you're working with kids, the sing, arguably the single biggest barrier to them responding to you or interacting with you is they don't quite know what to call you, right? But if you say, my name's Moose, every kid's going to remember it. Yeah. And, and you've opened that doorway. It's always about opening the doorway to that interaction. And it, and it just kind of stuck. And it's, I'm a skinny Brit. I was, well, I was a skinny Brit. I'm a little bigger now. And the, it just sort of stayed. And it's, and there's a point where it's useful. Like I was, I was in DC doing some work around the, on the hill. And I'd been at a dinner party with a congressman. And I had been balancing furniture on my face during this formal dinner for a bunch of staffers. I was like, hey, check this out for a trick. And I was balancing pieces of furniture on my face. And I, I, we turned up to have a meeting with this congressman and they were like, oh, are you booked? And the, somebody stuck their head out and was like, hey, hey, Moose. And they, rec they remember me from this dinner. And I, they went back into the congressman's office and I heard them say, it's that guy who balanced the furniture. He's outside. <laughs> and we got in. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, so you just, it's, yeah, it's like, anything out there you like learn how to do it and you find some use for it so yeah, yeah. And so you're the only mo native moose in the uk right because they're not as far as i know there are no moose in the uk no, but maybe they in are, a zoo they, they are in sort of europe i think so well yeah like, no sweden and and yeah scandinavia yeah. They're, they're up there yeah. but i don't think there's any on uk yeah ulcis ulcis elk, is, right? it's some the latin elk. name so yeah. i feel like there's so many like great lessons from this podcast it's like compassion, you know, compassion work in the outdoors, it's acceptance versus tolerance, you know, just say yes, you know, balance furniture on your face. I mean, it gets, <laughs> this is like, I'm so happy. Well, the, I, 
I think that if there's one thing I would, I, 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 I really like people being able to tell stories. So when I get together with my friends, we sit around and we tell these stories and some of them are new and some of them are just old classics. I, I got a friend of mine who has the most ridiculous story about playing blackjack with a, a dealer who can't count to 21. And it's, it's the most awesome story because <laughs> it just sort of, it just wanders and it just makes me laugh every time. And the idea of, of people telling stories to each other to entertain and to, to educate and to get to sort of get some lesson out of or just purely to laugh is a great thing and you all have stories like i know it and and it's the greatest gift to tell somebody else a story and make them laugh or go ooh is is fantastic and we all have stories i have a friend a friend of mine from new zealand has this crazy story about growing up as a kid and he said this story and it involved, he was like 10. And somehow they got hold of some beer and they got on their bicycles and they rode out to the coast and they had a, they had a barbecue and they drank the beer and then they went to sleep on the beach and then they got up the next day and they rode home. And he said, everybody's got stories like that. And you're like, not at 10, no. Bruce, not at 10, <laughs> but like, we all have these things. And... Mm -hmm. That should be the that should be the lesson of this is tell tell everybody a story tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Or <laughs> like remember Another to like one, live yeah. your life so you have stories versus just living through other people's stories, right? I think everyone's Wait. so consumed with like everybody's social media and like anyways, I'd like it's a good reminder to like create your own stories, live life, right? Say yes. Well yeah, and and I think to have this idea that you don't have to have a thousand photographs to remember the story. Mm -hmm. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it, I hate slideshows with a deep and abiding passion. The idea of sitting down and watching somebody explain to me what they did on to ex expedition, it bores me. But if I sit down with a cup of coffee and the person goes, well, it was day 23 and X, Y, Z happened. I'm like, oh, tell me more because they're <laughs> pasting that picture yeah. and I can use my imagination and, and if, the landscape, landscape is a great place for imagination. We imagine we see bears and wolves all the time. We imagine we hear the distant peal of thunder. You know, like we, we, we imagine all of these things. We fill in these gaps. And that's the great thing about being in the outdoors or being at the office and having an epic. But like we have this sort of theater around us as a space and we can inhabit it with a story. It, it doesn't have to be like a... I'm running down the Zambezi and a crocodile's coming towards me. It could be as simple as I was chased by this pit bull and, and I got chased by this pit bull for like two blocks in, in Sydney coming back from a job and that little bastard could run. And I was running hard and when my lungs were just about to burst, he decided he'd scared me enough and it, and it created this sort of long-term fear of pit bulls. And I was up in Queensland doing another job and these two pit bulls came after me and I was just wearing a pair of shorts, no shoes. And they come at me and I was just sort of punching them in the face, trying to get them off. And my buddy, Mike Kidd, saw what was happening and he grabbed the only thing he, he had as a weapon and it was like this squeegee mop. It was the most ridiculously <laughs> like frail piece of equipment to tackle two 50 pound pit bulls. And he came running out of the cane quarters, just like screaming and whirling this thing above his head. And these pit bulls took off. <laughs> And he said, and I was really shaken by it. And he said, next time a dog comes at you, he goes, don't back down. You, you got to be alpha. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, like a month and a half later, these, this dog came at the group. It was, a, it was a herding dog. And it just came in to like mess with this group. And I was like, yeah! <laughs> and it just turned around, it ran away. And I was like, all right. And it came back with two of its <laughs> mates. <laughs> I was like, what do I do now? Yeah. Run! <laughs> oh, man. Reinforcements. Moose, it's been really a pleasure talking with you and hearing your stories and uh, learning a little bit more about, you know, what you do on Search and Rescue as a fam... Let's see if I get this right. The... Uh, Say, family what's liaison. The, what's the role? <laughs> family. Family, family liaison, liaison officer. FLO. Yes. FLO. The flu. Okay. Yeah. 
<laughs> and uh, your book, if people want to check it out, um, they can find that on Amazon or where Amazon else? or any other good bookstore. If you put in "When Accidents Happen," you'll have a range of places to buy it. Nice. Okay. Great. And uh, where can people connect with you online if they want to learn more about what makes you tick? I have a website www.moosemutlow.com and that's got sort of a sort of overview about what I do for trading and consulting and it's got a bunch of free resources for people who are looking to try and get into family liaison. I'm, I'm definitely committed. We live in a world where everything's monetarized and there's a lot of great stuff out there that's free and we should all be part of that cycle of, of, of generosity. So I try to balance the book piece with making sure there's enough resources that somebody ought to make a difference that they can just get for free. That's great. Awesome. Good karma points. Right yeah. There. <laughs> and, and no social media, I take it. <laughs> I'm actually fancy. I'm on Instagram. You I am are? actually on okay. Instagram. I think I'm on Moose Mutlow. Yeah. On All Instagram. right. Cool. Yeah. We follow you now. Yeah. We follow oh, you. Oh, so, thank yeah. you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, got, I had fresh bear tracks this morning out Yay. on the site. It was awesome. Oh, that'll be awesome. Yeah. Hey, so uh, we will link all of this up in the show notes so that if anyone wants to uh, is listening to this and uh, wants to find more, that'll be the easy button for them. Just look at the show notes and we'll have links to all of that good stuff. Uh, Moose, uh, real pleasure once again. Yes, thanks. Thanks for coming on, Moose. It's been a, it's been a blast talking to you. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for having me along. I've enjoyed it. Well, that's going to do it for us. Please make sure to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on social media on Instagram at almost there underscore AP or the almost there adventure podcast on Facebook. You can find Severia at Adventure Us Women, that's Adventure US Women, Jeff at The SoCal Hiker, or me at The Muir Project. Our title track, Almost There, is performed by Opus Orange and is provided courtesy of Emoto. For more about this episode and all of our others, make sure to check out the show notes on our website, almostthereadventurepodcast.com. On our next episode, we chat with Michelle and Sunshine from Chattanooga about stand-up paddleboarding in bat caves and adventure vans. As always, thanks for listening.